Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and you're about to watch a conversation from Courageous Conversations 2021. However, before we get into that, I want to cordially invite you to Courageous Conversations 2022. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. The next panel is Black Religions and the Next Generation. Now this is an important panel because I'm on it, just kidding. But it's an important panel because many of Gen Z and millennials have left Christianity for other Black religions like Hebrew Israelism, Kemeticism, African spirituality. And we think it's an important topic to discuss. So I'm bringing to the stage Dr. Eric Mason, Dr. Brianna Parker, Dr. Antipas Harris, and myself, and our moderator, Rasul Berry. I know that you're gonna enjoy this conversation. Well, good afternoon. Hope you had a great lunch. I don't know if you got all your spices in before lunch or during lunch, but we're gonna keep it moving uh, with this uh, conversation. And wow, I get the opportunity to host one with our very own Lisa Fields in, as one of the panelists. So yeah, for the first time, y'all, this is history. Um, but just to kind of frame our time, this is a very uh, highly anticipated conversation for me personally because it connects with my own personal story. My parents uh, joined the Nation of Islam right before I was born, so my, even my own name, Rasul, is connected to this conversation about uh, black religions in the next generation. Um, but even as I think about that, I kind of wonder what is the distinction and the difference between black folk in a religion, like you know Tina Turner being a Buddhist or something, and black religions. So let's start with just the kind of definition. I'll just kick it off. Like when we say black religions, what does that even mean and how do we define that? You know, I'm not sure if there's like a solid definition that everyone agrees with yet. Um, but I think there are a couple of things that are usually true when people say black religions which you can also hear people say African religions and you don't know if they're using it synonymously, like all those things are true right now. Um, and I think one thing is people are, people will say it is uh, religions participated, religions people were participating in pre-enslavement, that's one way. Others will tell you that's actually not true because it's more culture that was being, that people were participating in pre-enslavement because it was very difficult to kind of like find a dividing line between religion and culture for Africans. So some of what we have believed has been religious and may, maybe has been a little more cultural. Um, 
But on a really surface level, when I think people say this and are drawn to figure it out, people are looking for something that they can identify with deep down in their soul, deep, far back in the origins of who they are, uh, where they've come from. And I think people are really just trying to connect to whoever we were before we were disrupted. I think one of the, um, <clears throat> the writers in um, our book, Urban Apologetics, he coined the word bricks. And so when I think of, which means black religious identity cults. So I would say I, I separate, we would separate black religious, black religions separately just from in general of people who are a part of any religion that happen to be black. But these are distinctly more identity based where people, like Carl Ellis talks about, people, black people are looking for the restoration of significance, dignity, and identity. You know, my significance, what's my purpose? Dignity, what's my value? Uh, I, uh, identity, who am I? And so I think a lot of the BRICS, black religious identity cults, tend to have at their foundation, that's why the conscious community, it hates Christianity because at their foundation and at their core, they, they're, they're uh, whether you're talking about Hebrew Israelites, whether you're talking about comedic science, Yoruba religions, at the foundation of the way African diaspora now relates to it is based on ethnic identity because of the effects of white supremacy, Western Christianity, and the stripping of our names, identity, and culture. Those are used as mechanisms to reconnect with that. So that's how I would kind of view it. Thanks. Um, I would frame it similarly. I think any uh, religion that centers uh, the black identity and that is for black people exclusively uh, would be how we would define a, a black religion. Yeah, I think, I think of um, Christian Smith, um, sociologists talk about the ongoing formulation of religion. Um, and when I think about the ongoing formulation of religion, I think about sort of the African-American formulation, which is one of the few people groups that was formed in the pressure cooker of the American experiment. That being the case, um, with the many different African identities that formulated the African-American reality, when we talk about black religion, I don't think we're really talking about African religion. I think we're talking about the ongoing formulation of religious identity that was born out of what Aristotle calls the phronesis or the lived wisdom of a people group that was formed in the pressure cooker of the American experiment. And so what that, has, what that means is for me is that black religion or the black church or any nation of Islam, so far as that is concerned, black Hebrew Israelites, is this ongoing, as Eric said, formulation that is born out of a search for meaning and identity, affirmation, the resolution of trauma that is ongoing and, and relentless that seems to have no end to it. So religion becomes a formulation, Christian Smith, the formulation of people in search of that which is beyond our social reality. Got it, and that, that kind of reminds me of your work, your book that you just came out with, Urban Apologetics, which struck me because you begin the book talking about black dignity. Why start a book that is this kind of compendium of you know, kind of categorizing and cataloging various you know, black religious religions or bricks, as you call them, with a conversation about black dignity? Yes, yeah, so 
it's funny, that chapter was actually written for Woke Church, and the editor was like, we can't put that in here. And so I ended up putting it, I said, man, this would be perfect for Urban Apologetics. And so the more and more, if you do even, if you look back to our experience in slavery, like I always say, you know, the reason why the black church exists is because the white church refused to be the church. And so in light of that reality, when you go back, I'm, I'm in Philly, so when you go back to, you know, the whole Richard Allen and that type of deal with uh, Absalom Jones and uh, George's Cathedral there, um, a Methodist church, and the whole story of that, and you go to African Methodist, uh, uh, African Baptist church, which my ancestors who are Angolan helped start, who are Angolan Muslims, helped start the first black church in the country. And, and you go into just how the formulation of, when you go through the Harlem Renaissance post reconstruction and you go all the way through the 30s to formulate, well, Noble Drew Ali in the early 1900s, over 100 years ago, Noble Drew Ali is really a forerunner, all of them coming out of the black church because they viewed the AME as, as falling back from the, the, the emphasis on black identity as a part of what the gospel needs to restore because of the destruction that slavery, white supremacy, Church of England did to us. And so you have like a, a pointed history, Noble Drali, Nation of Islam, Farad Muhammad, you, you know, all the way up through Malcolm X, who was really the, the largest vocal missionary for black identity that even if you didn't become Nation of Islam, you embrace some of the sociological ideologies that came along with that, that even, in, like even now, like nobody's, like Farrakhan, I don't think they have 20,000 members, but people still listen to that indoctrination of that. And so I think we talk about the, the reason why we talk about black dignity. We talk about black dignity personally because we believe that the gospel restores the whole person, not just the soul. So, so we believe that the gospel speaks to our economics. It speaks to uh, women, it speaks to men, it speaks to parenting, it speaks to, sing, it speaks to everything. So we believe the gospel disciples the whole person. We're just calling false American, Western evangelical Christianity we're calling them to stop just focusing on justification and that we're going to focus on the way the gospel restores our dignity that was destroyed by their partnership with Christendom. Love that. And I love the fact that, yeah, amen to that. Um, we have both a lot of historical perspective, but also fast forwarding it to the present context as well. Uh, Dr. Parker, you were the lead researcher in a Barner study that just came out a couple of months ago called Trends in the Black Church. These, these were some of the stats that uh, came out in that. It mentioned that as far as religious identity are concerned, 75% of African-Americans, which has been a, a significant decline and decreasing from the 90s, identify as Christian. 20% identify as some other uh, non-Christian religious identity. 18% with no faith at all. And that when it was broken down by demographics, I mean, it would be, the, the trend became even clearer with 86% Boomers identifying uh, African American, or you know, as Christians, but down to 67 uh, with Gen Z, and then you have the rise of the nuns. So, in your experience, you know, uh, why do you think millennials and Gen Zs are kind of leaving Christianity behind uh, for other options and specifically Black religions? 
Yeah, well, I first want to say specifically that identifying with Christ not identifying with Christianity doesn't mean you're leaving it behind. And I think in this day, after we have gone through a significant period of time with poor leadership, um, so much division, you almost have to identify what kind of Christian you are. And we don't know how to do that. Like, I almost need like a version of Christianity that doesn't wear red caps. Like, what do you call a Christian who didn't vote for Trump? Like, you know, that's who I am. Like, you know, so now we have to like figure out how to say, uh, which kind are you? Uh, Dr. Nicole Massey-Martin talks about the um, evangelical as noun versus verb. And so that's the problem with Christian identity. I don't think the pro I don't think we really know right now who has walked away versus who is willing to identify in a certain way, if we're honest. What I can also tell you is we saw an increase in Latinos who were able to identify as Christian, and they had us by, I think, like 3%. Uh, but they also, we also see a rise in Republican Christians who are probably maybe more patriotic than they are Christian, but they don't really know where there's a dividing line. So I don't, I think this is telling us we have a PR imaging and um, naming problem with identity. Not that we really know that people are walking away. And I only say this because when you look a little deeper in the data, you get to see that Gen Z is probably more hopeful than we would have ever imagined. I mean, when we're looking at statistics about um, the black pastors and authority in the um, community, Gen Z is ranking high. Millennials are not too bad, but Gen Z is more hopeful on a lot of the data. But the tricky thing is that boomers are actually most disappointed. So when we're really talking about what it means to identify as Christian as far as emerging generations, I think we also have to take a, a, just a quick second and say, if millennials and Gen Z are possibly declining, right, we're in a decline, or the identification decline is happening, we also have to think about what attendance looks like. When we looked at the data around attendance, black people really wanted us to believe that they go to church once a week at 51%. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> but black people want to be seen as weekly churchgoers, which is the opportunity. The real issue when we look at emerging generations not being in church is always going to be going back to boomers. Because I don't know a parent who knows something good for their children and they don't have them participate in it. Mm. So if boomers weren't taking their children to church, then millennials and Gen Z didn't give up on the church. Boomers did. Because no parent who loves their child yeah. stops them from participating in something they think is amazing. Yeah. So the real question is, how are boomers feeling? But for next generations, I think we have to just be honest and say it is difficult for us to tell somebody I'm a Christian without trying to explain what kind you are. So the, the, this whole identity piece is just really bad PR. Yeah. The, the intergenerational. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. I think the part of it, though, is children church. When um, boomers took their kids to church because they thought it was important, but they put them in children's church and they never transitioned to real church, if you will. Because mm -hmm. some of the research is showing that they, uh, children's church, youth church, dumps a lot of kids, uh, unchurched kids, out into the world because they never really were integrated. Like when I was young in the sanctified church, we all had to sit in the regular church. <laughs> so this phenomenon of children church, youth church, could play into that as well. Can I when we, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. <clears throat> Thank you for saying that. When we looked at data, 
Um, we've done it before in our original study for Black Millennial Cafe. When we looked at times when people were most pleased with what was happening in church, it was children's ministry and youth ministry. That could be said for parents or children because parents almost develop a cohort when their children are in these ministries and children appre appreciate it. The reason you see a deep decline after children's ministry and youth ministry is because you stop programming. So I don't think the issue is that they are not, um, that there's no real tr good transition. The issue is that there's no programming. And so if I've been used to getting something that is Sunday morning and it's a, like serious Wednesday and you're making sure I'm going and learning some kind of scriptures or I'm getting stronger in my faith in this way. And then when I get 18, I just go on Sunday and hope I understand what you're saying. The problem, I think the greater problem is there's no transition into programming for adults. And so I will tell you, my second book is on life stage ministry being the future of the church because everybody needs programming quarter life crisis that's programming we need to know that the rest of the world is not you know what I mean like advancing while we're just stalled and I think if we can get the programming issue down that whole transition into adult church is not an issue yeah I think um to kind of as I was thinking through both, what both of y'all said the thing that came to me was campus ministry and the decline that comes after campus ministry yep. Um, and I never thought about uh, campus ministry as a programming to, to you said it just then, but there's a ton of people that I was in campus ministry with after campus ministry was gone, they were gone from the faith or church. Um, and that's for several reasons. Campus ministry sometimes, uh, I don't, I, w I don't want to shade anybody, but picks up the, the, the stragglers or the people who are not connected to the social life and need community. Uh, Did you just say campus life picks up squares, Lisa? <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> and so... <laughs> you do not have to answer non-moderator questions. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but because the programming centers around them when they're getting acclimated to regular church life is very difficult because it doesn't center around, they're not leading. You have to interact with other generations. And I do think to, to your point, I think there's something we lose when we just isolate people by their age demographics mm -hmm. because they're not able to acclimate with the older generation. Mm -hmm. And it's something we lose because we need the young people's strength, but we also need the older wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so we have to create programming that doesn't just isolate us into different spaces, but incorporates us all together mm -hmm. so we can um, strengthen one another. What's, what's interesting <clears throat> about what everyone's saying and um, just what our brother laid out, what sisters laid out, and what you just laid out, Lisa, is a, the new church planting movements that are happening now among African-Americans, young African-Americans, <clears throat> it's interesting. Like our church, of course it's 15 years old, so it wouldn't necessarily be considered new, but like we have millennials and Gen Z, that's mostly what we have, we probably have 15% of our people that are above 50 years old. And so like, you're talking about the programming, it's interesting, a lot of us came out of youth ministry. Like, and so we weren't, we weren't trying to basically, we weren't trying to be senior pastors at all, right. but it ended up being pushed like, you, you should be senior pastors because the vision that you have for ministry isn't youth ministry only. And so a lot of, like if you look at most of the church plants, the churches we planted and many, most of them are filled with those people that come out, of us, you know, come out of those college ministries because yeah. you did college ministry for twenty years, you know, and so all of those we we got the fruit really of good churches raising people and college ministries. Like, wow, we can get them to work, and then they're like the missionaries 
to the unreached, unchurched, or de-churched ones that's in those environments. And so there is something happening. I just don't know if I'm clear on how it's looking and what those stats are. Yeah, yeah and I was involved with campus ministry, and I was not corny. Um, <laughs> But, I wasn't you know, talking about everybody. Or maybe I was and I didn't know. 80% of the people she said was lame. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me switch gears. Um, because, you know, I, I love the fact that we've kind of examined and really said we need to take a closer look at what's happening. And I think sometimes this conversation, it's almost been like this headline year in and year out, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Yeah. Gen Z and millennials, you know, don't want to have nothing to do with God. So I appreciate hearing more nuance than that and say, wait a minute, there's some things that might suggest something else. Yet at the same time, um, there is this other part of the conversation, which uh, I guess, whereas before you can say there's more competition in the market. I know when I've put out uh, content, sermons, messages, to this day, I still get feedback and questions coming to me, uh, direct messages about one thing in particular, and that was uh, a piece I did on Black Hebrew Israelites. And that just definitely reveals a certain interest. So I want to kind of turn the corner to the other things that are happening. Um, and what do you think is the appeal um, of various black religions, such as Kemeticism, um, traditional African religions, or their kind of new found framing of it, as well as Black Hebrew Israelites? I think one of the, the biggest things is something that uh, Dr. Mason hit on in his opening, identity. Yeah. I think it all centers around identity, something that validates their identity, that makes them feel like they're human and that gives them power um, and that is not controlled by their oppressors. And I think that is the driving force that when they see faith, especially in this culture, um, Dr. Parker hit on it at the beginning, it's, it's synonymous with Trump supporting. And so they want to distinguish themselves and set them apart and say, I want a faith that's not that. Yeah. And I think that's the appeal. And it also is, what's interesting to me about Hebrew Israelism, and this is a point also Dr. Parker brought up at the last panel last time, is they sit, they will sit they in front of <laughs> a, a, a computer for hours. So it's not like they don't want to learn or they don't want to work the word. So that takes away this narrative in Christian spaces that young people want shorter messages that are, are fluffy because these are people that sitting in front of a screen for hours going deep on things that sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I want to go that deep um, <laughs> uh, today. And they will sit there disciplined for hours because it feeds something in them. And so that shows us that people are hungry, that we just need to tap into what they're actually hungry for. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think I think there are a couple things that I think of when, when you bring that up. First of all, our first study on black millennials and faith said black millennials want to be seen as smart. And Hebrew Israelites are definitely people who think they're like exceptionally smart. Like, oh, see, why y'all out there singing them songs? We in here, you know, we going to work. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm the smartest person in the room. And I think it says something when you're feeding someone to make them feel like they're better when they walk away. We shouldn't miss this. They don't feel like they are the same after four hours of YouTube than they were when they started watching. Like they really feel equipped to go and have a different conversation. That's important. I also think we really can't uh, miss the fact that I, I tell all my clients what is happening with their secular counterparts. When we talk about time people are willing to spend and if we should shorten our sermons, episodes have not been shortened. Movies have not been shortened. 
But what we're willing to do is spend 12 hours in front of Netflix to binge watch something that we think is important or that we appreciate. So I don't think we should go to shrink ourselves. We should look at our counterparts. Now, there are some shows that should probably be 12 minutes because they ain't no good. And that's probably why we keep shrinking our services because we have to be honest and say, this is trash, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not where it should be right now. <laughs> and it's okay because you're better having a short something that's not so great than a long something that's horrible that I got to sit through all day long. And so look at your counterpart. What are they offering? Who is their target audience? How do they meet their needs? Is it just, um, you know, simply uh, the episode? Or are they doing so much on social media and so much in the community? Like, see what is happening with your counterpart. And then you get to make some decisions because they've done expensive market research to decide what they're going to do. And don't do the market research, but find your counterpart. And I think Hebrew Israelites really know that they are people believe like they're getting something, number one, they can't get anywhere else. Number two, they're getting something special that the rest of the world does not know. And number three, they're walking away better than they were when they started. It's interesting as we talk about this and I'm listening to everyone. You know, one of the things that I think about if black people were honest, we're sort of inferentially and explicitly trained not to trust white people. Like, whether you, you, I know we, that's, you know, that's backdoor talk, right? But, but what ends up happening with, there's a suspicion, like even, I'm not talking about the vaccine, this is it, but surrounding the vaccine, everybody thinks Tuskegee experiment, there's like, which neighborhood did you get your vaccine in? Did you go to the white neighborhood, the black neighborhood, you know? Cause I'm going to the other neighborhood to make sure, you know? So everybody's kind of got, <laughs> you know, these ideas. So what, so what the Hebrew Israelites do is they say, you know what, that white man is, Hidden from you, read. And then he say, he hidden from you, da 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 And then you got Farrakhan say, man, that white man has hidden so many things. And you're going through, and all you're hearing is all this hidden information. Then they pulling out, like, he got the thing on the Jews that um, he published through his Islamist scholar. And so there's always, if you look at most of these bricks, there's always some type of underlying suspicion of something that's being hidden from us that you can only find out if you uh, are engaged by that group. And it plays on our level of superstition. And then they, they, they train them to say, if another black person or those Christians, when you go to them say this, they'll, they've been trained by the white man. See, that's a 501c3. And see, they get, yeah, they, they, get, they, get, they get government money, they get government money to not tell you that who your real people are, where you're from. And so they're trained almost with, as they're being indoctrinated, they're being trained against how to view us from a psychological, not a, not, not a scholarly standpoint, but this is the reasoning behind why they're not accepting it because they've been brainwashed. So I think that's a huge piece that black people literally feel like, if we're honest, that white people have been hiding something from us and these groups are providing what's been hidden. Yeah, yeah it's almost like it. Listerine too. They created a problem and the solution. Gingivitis wasn't a thing until Listerine wanted to come in and break the market. So mm. people weren't being diagnosed with gingivitis. Listerine helped you to diagnose yourself with gingivitis and they gave you the solution for the problem, which was Listerine. Mm. So sometimes it's the problem and the solution that they bring. Can I, can I add something? Yeah, um, one thing that did strike me um, that I didn't think about because I had always seen Hebrew Israelites as aggressive. Um, they come to, we, I mean, if y'all know we do an HBCU tour, they follow us to every stop. One drove from South, two drove from South Carolina all the way to Southern, just to, to heckle and cause disruption at our event. And they documented the whole way. Uh, I was like, this is intense. 
But anyway, so the, the two came and they were doing their thing, doing Q&A, you know, read. Um, if y'all don't know, they hold the Bible. Somebody's the reader. And um, the other guy got upset and he, he stormed off. But then the other guy stayed. And I guess his courage was the other dude. And when he was there, he almost broke down in tears. And that was the first time I saw them differently because he said, I just want to know why my brothers are being gunned down in the street. And then I moved from seeing him as an aggressor to a person just like me that's grappling with the problem of evil. And I think many of them internally are wrestling with where God is. And he was like, we must be cursed. We must not be doing, that's why we're getting shot in the street. And so he bought into the narrative of them being cursed because that's the only way he could make sense of evil. That's good. Yeah, that is good. And one thing that um, in, in the book, Urban Apologetics, which I definitely encourage you all to get, there was a statement that was made in it that was really interesting I'd like to, for us to talk about. And it mentions that the preoccupation with blackness has always been coping with and surviving the trauma of anti-black white supremacy and the way that it impacts our whole selves, right? So that's been a, a preoccupation. And so, but part of the thing that's been interesting in a lot of these um, discussions or where you look peek behind the curtain of a lot of these teachings, there often always is a European or white influence that's somewhat shaping even those teachings in some way, right? So this is the question. In, in what ways do black re religions both reveal our trauma and actually reflect aspects of our trauma? In what way? I think there are a lot of ways in which it does, but I think that part of it goes back to what I said earlier about lived wisdom. All religion really is born out of relational epistemology. Um, this how do I know what I know except by experience? Uh, and what happens is whiteness historically has become propositional, something that we must ascribe to even when it's not part of our lived experience. So I think that part of what is the search, even with black Hebrew Israelites, is this sense of identity, but also compassion, compassion, come with passion, suffer with. This idea that God comes among us and suffers with us. And that kind of God that enters into the everyday life experience is more attractive than a propositional one. So the question is not, did you vote for Trump? Does your life experience lead you to a connection with a person who talks and believes like that? You see what I mean? And if God does not enter into my life experience and affirm my woundedness and provide a sense of solidarity, a healing solidarity, then that God is not to be trusted. So what black Hebrew Israelites, Nation of Islam, and anyone, so far as that is concerned, who is really authentically in search of God is in search of God that answers a response to my everyday life experience. And I think this, earlier we talked about youth not going back to church and all, I think that's part of it, right? When they get out of youth group and all that, they have to go back to this propositional expression of celebration, one that I cannot relate to, one that I have to propositionally agree to. It's time to stand up now, time to sit down. None of this means anything to my life. Um, so it's anachronistic in that way. So I think I'm answering your question. 
I'm enjoying talking. So. <laughs> no, you're good. It's good. So, I, 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 <laughs> but I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah. So the question again is, in what ways do black re religions both reveal our trauma and reflect it? Wow, that's a deep question. Um, I think that um, whenever I say this all the time, when you bring people out of slavery who have been raped, families destroyed, no economics, no plan, um, that's highly irresponsible. I mean, if someone got raped right now, we would have the rape unit here, we take them, we, like our people got out of slavery literally with no counseling, no economic plan, no sustainability, well they had one, but of course you know. Um, and so all of those things have genera generational, then you create ways, black codes, Jim Crow, uh, all of the different things over the years, the destruction of black wealth in many cities outside of even Greenville section of Tulsa, in Wilmington, North Carolina, all these places, spring from Missouri, and that trauma is handed down. So we train our children with our trauma. <clears throat> but we take them to church, and the answer has been kind of either the mourner's bench, kind of the praise and worship time, because we didn't go to therapy. Praise and worship was therapy, or the devotions was therapy, and you cried and you was hoping it was over, but you still didn't get over the fact that you were molested. You still didn't get over the fact that black people are in this position and, and condition. So what these th these things do out there is you have a comedic guy stand stand there and tell you, do you know we used to be kings and queens? Do you know black woman that you're God? You know why that white man wanted to do this to your body? It's because of this. And so what begins to do, what they begin to do is begin to engage the trauma with significance and with dignity and begin to speak into that trauma. When the Hebrew Israelites said, do you know you're the kings of this earth and you're the, really the chosen people? They feel that. Do you know, who did you worship before they gave you that, that white Jesus when you, and all of that right there. Do you know that we used to worship the ancestors and our ancestors hand their deity down and all of those different things begin to, so I think, you know, it affects our trauma by making us hungry for dignity restoration. And what happens though is, is when the church isn't stepping in the gap to show how Christ, the ultimate God man, who's not a white man, um, but is a Middle Eastern man of olive to black complexion, um, uh, is the one who actually restores dignity. And that was his mission, you know, to restore our dignity was an aspect of it and to restore the whole person. I think we really have to make a fundamental part of our, uh, uh, um, our, our training of people in discipleship. It, it can be Christology, ecclesiology, soteriology, uh, uh, all of those different missiology, all those different things, but we need some justiceology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you, you know, we need some manhoodology. We need some womanology. <laughs> we need all of those different things because we have to. We have to begin to. That's why, if, if you look in uh, Acts 15, they knew what the Gentiles were dealing with, and they add sexology into their fundamental. It said, "Teach them these essentials." In other words, even the apostles knew when you are dealing with discipling a culture that deals with systemic issues, you have to apply God's word to it. And I just think that we've done a poor job of not only identifying it, but speaking into the trauma of, uh, and we need to just forget about who is against the fact that but there's no trauma that exists. This is not handed down. I'm like, listen, we're going to have to do this ourselves and stop depending on other people and asking them for money and resources to do what we need to do ourselves. Very true. I think one way it um, it was reveal and reflect. 
one way it reveals is, you know, the angle on like family and strength and leadership and, you know, your kings and queens and your capacity and like those types of things. And I have to be honest, this is very difficult. And I was really hoping I could get through this without ever being honest about this part. That my brother is a black Hebrew Israelite. And in the teaching, I'm so bad and negative. As a black Christian woman preacher who has been an associate pastor, that we can't have a relationship. So the very religion that tells you about how white men destroy families is destroying mine. When he cannot acknowledge his birthday and my mama lay down and birthed him, risking her life having twins. When he can't have a relationship with his own black mama. But he spends his time telling others how white men are tearing apart his family. The very thing that they're attempting to put together. <laughs> and tearing apart. My sister's deceased, his sister. His twin sister is deceased. He is all I have, and I can't have him as long as they do. Mm. That's all right. Mm. Thank you for sharing. And I think we just want to pause and reflect because this isn't just academic. It's not just intellectual. Um, I've had wives reach out to me, estranged from their husbands who you know are studying things and it's just creating this rift and it's like what do I do I'm talking like days ago and are afraid if they confront it then that's going to lead to domestic violence um so this is real and their real lives on the line and I think it's so important for us to to remember there's people behind this right What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at ju3project.org. So this is real. And their real lives on the line. And I think it's so important for us to, to remember there's people behind this, right? And in order to speak to it, I don't know if anybody else wanted to kind of just share about just the realness or just uh, any other aspect about just what's in front of us with this. Well, I think I don't think we can ignore the impact of um, religious trauma anyway. Uh, and religious trauma sometimes in search of one thing could destroy another. 
and I think part of the tension in many so-called black religions is it's focused on one thing, whether it's the white man or whether it's being a man, right? Teach me how to be a man, I'm looking, I wanna become a man at the expense of hurting black women. But it's the sense of not knowing. I did a lecture one at a university on masculinity. And I talked about how masculinity in this culture is defined based on a certain perception of femininity. And that oppressive vision of femininity is part of the challenge that we're having with trying to redefine masculinity. I don't know how to be a man except if, if, I'm, if I'm told to give up certain kind of oppressive behaviors to women, then the question becomes, so what does it mean to be a man? Because society has forged a certain meaning. So I don't know your brother, and I would not even try to explain that. Um, I can only speak from my own experience that there are many African-American men who don't know what it means to be a man. And so I know of people who have been attracted to black Hebrew Israelite because there's a certain maleness that, that they are attracted to. And they become so fixated on that, um, in my experience, not all, that it, they almost give up everything to become that one thing that is missing in their life. So, but that's also the case in Christianity. <laughs> uh, that's also the case, it, you know, so it's this, it's this phenomenon of a competing ideals that need to be uh, deconstructed. Yeah. So I think there is a, this is a healthy conversation to talk about both the benefits of faith and the challenges of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one big thing I try to always remember personally, we're dealing with this with people that we've dealt with in our church and family, is that we, can't, we, we treat this as a natural identity issue only, not realizing that it's also spiritual warfare. Um, you know, the Bible says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of lies, see it in their own conscience as with the branding iron. The enemy has dispatched, and I believe has used the trauma of black people as a mechanism to draw a, a, a need. The devil always overpromises and underdelivers. What he will do is he will make you think that he's fulfilling a core need while destroying everything. In Genesis, when he promised, he said, you could be like God. And little did he know that he was trying to snatch their authority. I mean, what the devil will do, well, he'll make you focus on one tree when you had an earth full of them. And make you think that freedom is based on God letting you do what he told you not to do. And a lot of times, that because of his deceptiveness, we were just talking about this because we know I'm doing a series on deconstructing your faith right now. And one of the things that you, that you just see is he was a guardian cherub. People talk about he was the angel that led the choir in heaven. That's nowhere in the Bible. They called him a guardian cherub, which means he was, a, he was a spiritual fighter. And he knew how to develop strategic plans for God. But now he's falling with that same power. Now he's in the black community. He's in every community. But he's in our community. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get our men and women to think that God can't restore their identity. Or another God can store their identity. Or not having God in your life will restore your identity. And so I think with all that we're doing, we got we to gotta do some old church. My brother brought up, you know, him coming up in the, in the old school Pentecostal church, you know, uh, praying, 
fasting, loving, and educating. I think all of those things are so important in dealing with our trauma in this and being honest in what we don't know and don't understand. I, I, that's a great point, uh, the spiritual warfare piece. We, we recently did a series from people to person and uh, we had a, a, um, a woman that was uh, a comedic science African spiritualist that I sat down with did one-on-one. And she was talking about her story and she it was interesting to me because she, to, she told me, she said, I grew up in church I grew up as a, uh, did she say Bible? She said something. She used to carry her Bible around um, in high school. And I was like, oh, like, how did you, where did the transition happen? And she began to tell me her story. She talked about how her boyfriend died and that trauma and that he started visiting her after he was dead yeah. and would talk to her and tell her the future and it would yeah. start to happen. So she went back to her church and said, hey, can you help me decipher these dreams? And they couldn't do it. They, they told her she was crazy. This was just grief, all of this stuff. And so she, she's frustrated because she's like, these are supernatural experiences. She's like, I'm having dreams. I'm having visions. I'm talking to the dead. Then her friend invited her to an African spiritualist event. And the first presentation was on dream interpretation. And, she, and it, they told her everything that the dreams meant. And so she said, you know, I'm not saying Christianity doesn't work. It just doesn't work for me because this actually was able to decipher my experiences. And as I'm talking to her as an apologist, I'm looking for, you know, a reason. I was like, this got to be like some Elijah, show me your God <laughs> better some fire. Because she's, it's not reason for her. It's experience. Yeah. And so I think what you hit on, uh, Dr. Mace, was so vital about us praying, fasting, and knowing how to engage and showing that God has more power than demonic power. And that's going to be the key to break through. Nothing else, I think, will work. I'm glad you mentioned experience, because when we looked at the data on the state of the black church, we got to see that experience really trumps everything. And every time I go with a client or giving a presentation, I say, you know, experience really matters. And the people who will sweep this country, if they can get the transparency and approach to money right, will be Pentecostals because they can offer experience. Um, people are always like, well, what do we need to do? And somehow pastors think experience means smoke and lights and skinny jeans because we have actually forgotten what an encounter means. You know, we missed it. It's like, how can you make me feel good? And it's like, no, address the fact that I walked in saying, God, I'm giving you one more time because I want to end my life. Like, stop talking about everybody coming in here excited at church. You excited at church because you're preaching. Everybody else ain't excited when they walk in the door. And so experience is about meeting the need beyond what you are able to do. And somehow we do all this worship planning, and we never imagined that God is actually going to show up. Yeah, you know, and, and, and this is powerful because we had um, a young lady years ago, a college student came to church, and she was saying she was being tormented by spirits. So she said um, she went to a, a person to read tarot cards and they told her that it was a rapist in North Philly that was going around. And she said the covers would get pulled off of her and he would accost her. And, and, I, was, and, I, was, and, I, and I started, I said, okay. I, so we started talking through that. And I said, well, let's tell him to do it around the 18. And we started talking about what a familiar spirit is. And I said, spirits pose as beings that either someone connected with or whatever and masquerade themselves to get contact 
And so we started talking about that in the process. Like, we got to get back to the process. Like, you got to renounce some stuff. I come against the, you got to call some blood of Jesus down. You, listen, you, listen, and all, all of that too. And I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to sensationalize it or anything, but I think we, we need to put on all our armor. I, I think I think we only put on one piece. We putting on the top armor for right. the head, right. but we need some shields. We need some swords. We need some feet. We need some belts. You know, and, and man, man, we need, we need, we need some some young folk that can that can touch heaven. We, I mean, we, and so I think that we, I think that, man, I, I can't wait. I would love to see intergenerational reconciliation in the black church, to where the black, the older, the OGs learn from the young bucks, and the young bucks learn from the OGs, and 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 we can teach each other our tactics. Can you imagine how we could form? A spiritual line around the church to be, but and everybody may not make it, but we'll at least because one of the key things about this time is catching people when the doubts begin. That's very true. A lot of times we don't know until it's too. We don't know they've been watching YouTube for nine months. No. And by the time you're talking to him, like a guy we had to remove from the church, he was so indoctrinated. He believed the earth was flat. He believed Jesus was the son of Joseph, and he was listening to this non-camp Hebrew Israelite. He was gone by the time we got to him. And so I'm praying that even as we talk about this, that we're able to get to people even quicker mm -hmm. because it's tough. It's tough when you love a person and they're gone and there's nothing you can do because Satan has so pulled them away. So, yeah. yeah. So, so good to remember the spiritual battle dynamic of this and putting on the full armor of God. Um, speaking to those questions that people have, we're going to now uh, pivot to really receiving your questions. Remember, we're on the pigeonhole.at app. Uh, you can use the CC21 um, you know, to get that or just the QR code uh, in your programs. Uh, so we're gonna uh, just turn our attention to uh, first question. Uh, this one was the top question that people were asking about. Uh, trends like burning sage, using crystals, casting spirits, manifesting, are popular among the younger generations. How does the church minister to young people about those practices? Oh gosh, they're gonna be all over my social media. You know, I'm Baptist and I was Pentecostal and stuff and I just have to be honest. And I think we should all be honest. You know, I have to just say sometimes, I just don't know about all that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, I'm not studying it. I don't want no crystals. I don't want to say, I don't want to use no sage. And, you know, I don't need no manifestations because the Bible says, call those things that be not uh, as though they were. You know, the Bible tells us about what people are calling manifestations, you know. And while I'm trying to call up power in my community and collective responsibility and power, other people calling up on TikTok about how to draw men into their life. You know what I mean? It's a waste of my time to be sitting there um, taking up God's time, talk about today, you know, in three days, if I'm just going <laughs> to say this every day, the man who loves me is going to come at me. You know what I mean? So... It just, it just doesn't seem to be, even when we're talking about manifestations and all this other stuff, it doesn't seem to be, I'm really community driven, right? And so if what I'm doing is only gonna bless Brianna, I don't really be knowing if that's God, but I do know when I can call on God to bless my community and bless a group of people, and then I'm spending time thinking about people outside of myself, I'm sure God is in that. So what I what I cannot say in any way is that it's sinful and evil, because I just don't pay much attention to it. But what I can say is I'm not comfortable with it, it's not what I know, what I do know is like the Holy Ghost, and holy oil and casting out 
demons and shouting. These are things I know, you know what I'm saying? But that's odd to someone else too, so it's communion. So I'm not gonna cast it down because I haven't spent the time trying to understand it. And I think we do that sometimes too quickly just because it's not what we know. It's just not the way Brianna is going to produce things in her life. But I do understand that somebody needs to spend the time, probably Lisa, you know what I'm saying? Actually figuring out, you know, if this is holy and if God is in it and how we do it in a way, you know what I mean, that still honors God. But I don't want to be so rigid that I believe that there is no God outside of what I've seen and what I've experienced because I want to be open to the full version of God and the full version of like holiness and power of God. And I don't know that any of us have seen that in any church. You know, I think, I think um, we got to really pay attention to it. And I, I come at it from two perspectives. One is I'm old school Pentecostal, so um, that's my faith formation. But academically, I think that syncretisms is not really new. Um, and I think that to attend to understanding would be a virtue. Uh, because it may or may not be exactly what we think that it is among the people who are actually practicing those things. And I've had some conversation, uh, and, and all syncretism is, is not acceptable either. I, I'm not suggesting that, but I think there's a critical reflection that we have to have on the meaningfulness of those practices among folks. And if there is something that they're in search of that we can offer replacement, or is there something there that we might consider? Um, even Pentecostalism is full of syncretisms, the ring dance, all of that. It, it seems like, you know, it just fell out of heaven. But earlier days, that was Africanisms that were demonized by people who didn't understand it. So I think that we have a little bit of a praxis-oriented investigation, empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by the practices of the church. But I don't think that we should rush to a conclusion on that. And partner with people. If I wanted to understand deeper African experience, because I'm not saying these things are African experiences, right? But like, I'm gonna ask Dr. Otis Moss to come with me because he's so much smarter than me in this area so that I can be open to having experiences with someone to guide me. When you talk about intergenerational work, that's intergenerational work and just understanding collaboration enough to say, there are some things I haven't studied well enough to be making any decisions on, but there are also some things I want to explore. But I want there to be someone who can walk alongside of me and say, no, no, sugar, come on back from that one. But this makes sense. And we have to get to the point where we know enough people because we are outside of our circles and that we can trust enough people to guide us into things because this whole anti-intergenerational collaboration kind of stuff, that's actually Western. It's not even for black people because we had three people in one household most of our lives. And so I don't understand when we stopped being able to talk to our grandmother and our aunt. And so I think we all can think of somebody or find someone who we trust to explore or have conversations with who can help us get to a better place of understanding. Yeah. And I think when it comes to like sage, I think it's important to understand why people do it. Because a lot of people aren't doing it for spiritual reasons. They're just doing it just to like sage. Uh, and But some people do have a spiritual thing connected to it. So I don't want to presuppose on somebody just because they like sage that they into some something deeper than they are. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing we need to do when we're engaging them is like, what's your purpose behind it? Does it have any spiritual significance to you? A lot of people, they say, no, it's just what I like to do. Um, and if it doesn't have spiritual significance, then I think that you don't have to go too much deeper. But if it's like, if it's connecting them to something, if they feel like 
crystals, you know, I, I saw a friend of mine charging his crystals on his car. And I was like, I was confused as what was happening, but it had some spiritual significance to him. And so that's what I want to see. What is this need meeting for you? And then are you trying to control your own destiny with spiritual aspects outside of God because you want control of your life? And you feel like something, yeah. life is so out of control. And with Christianity, you felt like you still didn't have control. So you seek other means for control. I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves as well. Yeah, that's an important, this is an important question. Um, when it lands on the side of I'm using sage to cleanse the atmosphere of evil spirits or whatever, and it's not just, sage is created by God, so there's no inherent spirituality in sage, right? Um, when it does, when I, when I do find out that they're doing it for particular incantation or in, in invoking reasons or any type of div divination, one of the things that I let them know is I talk about the prohibitions in scripture on those things. So I'll talk about it and they'll say, well, why is it wrong? And I'll say, well, God has legitimate means for entering the spirit realm. So legitimate means, I said, when you pray, there's a reason why the scripture says, go before the throne of grace. Because when you pray, you're transported spiritually before God's throne. That's legitimate access. When you get saved by grace through faith, in Christ and you're regenerated based on Titus 3, you legitimately enter the spirit realm. In John 10, Jesus says a statement. He said, I am the door to the sheepfold. Anyone that comes any other way is a thief and a robber. What is he referring to? When you, God told Israel not to, in Deuteronomy 18, not to illegitimately access the spirit realm because you don't know what else comes with it when you open a door that's not controlled by God's spirit. And so when you begin to open those doors, you always get more than you bargained for. And so what will happen is Satan just doesn't come in in possession of you. He'll come in and do other things in your life and you'll wonder why there's strongholds in your life. What's a stronghold? It's a mindset uh, that affects your ability to grow and different things. And you will wonder why, you, and then you have to go through different things in order to find out. And I've done, I come from, I have my great grandmother was a Cherokee. My, my grandfather was, uh, uh, was from Trinidad, have Angolans, a lot of people in our family. So we had roots in our family. We saw jack-o'-lanterns in South Carolina bouncing up and down. All the, I don't even know if I'm, you know, we had all kinds of folklore from our background. And I would be scared to death going to sleep. You know, they out there talking about grandmama came and she visited me. I'd be about, to, I'm, I'm six, about to <laughs> walk on water trying to run somewhere. Um, and, but I grew up in a superstitious family, and there was, there, was, there was something I could feel around me. And I believe, this is my opinion, so don't crucify me. I felt like the adults in my life had opened up a lot of spiritual doors by their superstition. And it took me years to begin, when I trusted Christ, to begin to get some of those superstitions off of me. But then to close some of those doors. So what am I saying by saying all of this? I'm saying all of this to say there are legitimate ways to access the spirit realm that God has created. Any other way opens up for things that you don't... Listen, when God say don't do something, you don't have to know why. So you but telling I, me God I, says, because I said so? I, I, listen, listen, well, listen, listen, uh, listen. Sometimes, that's what I feel like sometimes. It's, the Bible says, the things that are revealed are for man. The things that are not are for God. And so for me, when God says don't go into that stuff, I don't need to say, you know what? I'm going to go to this soothsayer to see what happens. And so for me, 
in those areas, I, I, I like to make sure that I'm functioning in the strength of the Lord and not submitting my life. And I got kids. And, and I don't want, I, you know, I'm superstitious in a good way. I don't want no spirits visiting their room and scaring them and putting a spirit of fear in them early. So I'm, I just try to be careful, man. But, you know? but, I, but I think there's something very different from, I mean, you said a lot of great stuff there. But, but the question is, what, what is the object of worship, right? Because some things are used as avenues to, to they're used as signs and symbols, right? Whether it's praying to rosaries or whether it's Old Testament temple and temple objects. Nobody, they weren't praying to those objects, but those many times were borrowed from pagan societies. Uh, so I, I think that the question for me is, are these crystals and so forth, are they being the object of worship or are they um, signs and symbols through which we access or, uh, I mean, people use the cross in their hand to pray. Yeah. So, uh, so, and then, I mean, even in the Pentecostal church, the stirring of the spirit, yeah. that's very African indigenous, but we do it by saying, you know, in the morning, when I rise in the morning, and by the time we get to 1500, then the spirits start moving, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're saying the same thing over again. It, it, it's the stirring, it's African indigenous stirring of the spirit, right? There are all kinds of that in our own traditions. So that's what I'm saying is the question, are they praying to these things as the object of worship? Or are they signs and symbols through which they access the spirit realm? Yeah. And, and I'm not sure that, we, that it's unbiblical to just brush that off. Yeah, I'm, see, that's why I began my statement with when I find out that it's actually going another direction. I, I think, I, I, don't, I don't know if I use syncretism as a good or bad term. I think syncretism when it comes to faith is a bad term. I would use contextualization. I believe 2 Corinthians, uh, 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 now 1 Corinthians 9, I become all things to all men that I may win. So that's a contextualization statement. In Colossians 2, when he talks about the philosophies of the world, he's actually engaging them about cosmic syncretism, angels and worshiping of angels and items and trinkets. And so I think that there is a way that we can bring our cultural dancing and different things into our Christian faith as long as the origin I mean, as long as the functionality of it is an idol worship, as long as we're transferring it as a cultural expression of our commitment to Jesus Christ. So that's how I would distinguish it. Got it. Well, we're going to move to the next uh, question. Um, and again, I'm just giving the people what they want. Top, uh, top choice. Um, and I think in this, what are the similarities and differences between QAnon and BRICS, Black Religious Identity Cults? QAnon, QAnon, the uh, superstition with the Trump, Trump support. Yeah, so this is kind of a um, secret knowledge uh, belief that there's a uh, cabal that is behind the world and like a, like a Oz. Yes, but that like Democrats were like secretly pedophiles and uh, and this was I'm behind gonna, Trump and <laughs> y'all, 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 okay. Any, any takers on that one? <laughs> so, um, you know, accusatory statements and things like that, it, it, that has to be taken seriously. Right. Um, in any group that start to fabricate people's practices that are untrue, that should be set aside. Okay. I set that aside. That said, I do think that 
part of my experience with people say we use the Trump phenomenon as, as, a, as a point of focus. It's all based on experience, and that's the connection, right? If you're fabricating stuff, that should be set aside. But half the time people talk about people or want a certain political idea, they don't know anybody outside of that experience. So their lived experience makes sense to that. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the society that we have. We have a black reality and a predominantly white reality. And of course, there are folks on either side, but it's all based on experience. Yeah. It's experience driven. I, you know, I used to be uh, a grown up fundamentalist in, in the, in the, in the uh, rural Georgia, live by the sword, die by the sword. I was for capital punishment until I went to seminary and was a uh, chaplain in the prison, had to sit there with women telling me that it was all women's prison, telling me their stories. And suddenly I it questioned my theology of redemption and it, my theology flipped on his head mm -hmm. because I was exposed by experience to something. Yeah. But if I never have that experience, I never I'll be still preaching yeah. live by the sword, by the sword. You don't know anybody. Let me let me kind of <laughs> maybe draw something out that might be underneath that question that relates to what uh, you said, Dr. Harris, earlier in terms of uh, what you called a I think a social uh, uh, relational epistemology, mm -hmm. and that is like one thing that I think is similar with some of the conspiracy theorists or things is this aspect of how do we know stuff. Right, like, and does truth still matter? I think you know many of us have maybe had experiences where you seem to correct something based on something that someone said, and you go, "Well, actually, it doesn't say that," and it doesn't seem to move the needle. And I, and I, I'm, I'm uh, Dr. Parker. I'll kind of start with you because I know this has somewhat been seen as somewhat of a postmodern perspective or whatever in terms of truth. What role does like truth or doctrine positions have in terms of how? people come up with knowing nowadays and how might that be different in a way it used to be? Yeah, um, I, I don't know that, I think Goody said this yesterday, you know, about truth and is there a truth, you know, like what do, what is true? Is what's true what people know and the majority of the people believe or what can be proven? You know, as soon as I give data um, that people don't agree with or that's outside of their experience, they say, what's your methodology? If I told them, they wouldn't know. <laughs> it's just their way of saying, I gotta find a way out of this. You know what I mean? Like, like how do I make this, you know, not true? But I'll never forget um, Mrs. Guns uh, said, uh, Jeffrey Guns' wife, he, she said to us 20 years ago, I think I was in ministry, and she came in and she said, if 99% of the people think you're a liar and you've never told a lie, are you a liar? I said, no. She said, okay, if 99% of the people say you're a liar and you've never told a lie, are you a liar? I'm like, no. If 99% of the people say you're a liar, you've never told a lie, are you a liar? I said, no. She said, you are. Like, if 99% of the people believe this, that's what they're holding on to. I understand that you've never told a lie, but in this world, that probably doesn't even matter anymore. Other perspectives on the role that truth plays or this idea of what it takes to maybe even, is persuasion, right, different than the way it used to be? Okay, here's a text, yeah. here's a answer. No, we, you know, the Bible doesn't say that, or this interpretation of Deuteronomy 28 doesn't mean this. Is that enough? Like, if you take, <clears throat> that's a very good example, the Deuteronomy 28 fallacy. 
um, with Hebrew Israelites, for those who aren't mm, familiar, they use it as a way, as an identifier for us being the people. I think it's both for that one. It's both like, you know, you go through and it's one part that they love which says, and, and, and foreigners will come into your basically community and you will buy from them. And they say, see, you see the Koreans in our community? You see what they're doing? Like, and they, they make those parallelisms. <clears throat> it's both emotional because, of course, we're frustrated that we don't own the majority of the businesses in our community. But, it, it, but it's also true. Mm. <laughs> but the question is, is that verse talking about that? Right. And so that's the thing. That's, that's, a, that's that, I think in our culture, <clears throat> it's both and, not either or. Because I think people, it, like, people can see the emotive nature of those people who ran into the Capitol. There's no truth in that, you know? I mean, so I think that when we talk about this whole idea of whether people are influenced by the experience or truth, I think that there's information or facts that aren't necessarily truth, but they connect with the reality of what they have in their experience. And, and I think that's critical because what that means then from maybe an apologetic standpoint is if we are just trying to confront the informational side but not the experiential side, then we're only seeing part of the story. Absolutely. I was going to say, I think as a Christian, I believe in Jesus. And, the, and part of the guiding principle of truth for me is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I, I believe that. So as a fundamental methodological framework, the story of Jesus and the narrative in scripture is a non-negotiable. Now, my lived experience is interpreted by it, and my interpretation of it is guided also by my lived experience. Now, that's Pentecostalism in me because I had an experience with the risen Lord. And so that experience then was interpreted by the scripture, but I also interpret the scripture by that experience. Mm. That's a good point, but they'll ask us, <clears throat> they'll say Jesus never existed. And then we'll say, okay, well, you got, you got Josephus, you got this person that talked about this person, da, 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 da. You say, okay, he existed. But just because he existed, does that mean, like you're saying, does that even mean that he died on the cross, he was raised from the dead, and that he's coming back and that he's sitting on a throne somewhere waiting to come back? Yes, he's a historical person, but is your, it, does your Bible tell the truth about that actual Jesus? So that's, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think as he was talking, it just made me think about Thomas. Thomas had witnesses to tell him Jesus is alive. And he said, until I see it. For myself, I don't believe it. He had to have an encounter with Jesus, not just testimonies of Jesus. And I think many people, they are just not going to rely on our testimony. They have to have an experience and encounter with him themselves. And that's actually happening in when, we, when, when I talk to missionaries in foreign countries that people are having dreams where they see um, Jesus and Jesus, they actually have an encounter with him. And they turn from whatever religion they're in they're in and turn to Jesus because of that experience. So that's good. I I think we'll probably have time for this this last one. So uh, this was a a hot one. How do you address people who acknowledge the universe and ancestors in place of God and Jesus? That's a good one. So I'm reading this book written by all of these foreign scholars who are from Asia Africa, and they're talking about how they do 
missions. They said instead of destroying someone else's worldview, connect the Christian worldview into it. This African scholar murdered this missiological evangelistic outreach experience. He talked about how, he said, y'all believe in the ancestors too. He's like, Christians believe in ancestors? He's like, yeah. And then he started walking them through how he, he contextualized ancestorism. Then he said, but then we have, I have an elder brother who's my ancestor. I said, I said you better preach. I said, you better come on. He said, he, said, <laughs> he said, Jesus is your ultimate ancestor and he wants to feed you a brand new bloodline, right? I said, oh! <laughs> I was like, oh God. <laughs> and so I say that to say that sometimes in apologetics, we seek to deconstruct versus finding common ground where the meta-narrative is weaving into those different cultures. And so uh, that's what I would say to that. I, I mean, yeah. I ain't got I mean, nothing after tongues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, all right, if one person maybe. We got just one, I'm trying to get a few people what they want. Uh, what do you think about the rise in personality tests such as Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, Zodiac signs, et cetera? Can this be used within Christianity? Probably got time for one person. Listen, but you know, I'm a, I believe in data and research. I think we need to stop throwing out the baby with the bathwater, acting like everything is just demonic. Now there are some things that I think you can go deeper into and they can get to really into really murky waters. But I also think that the same way we're like, we get weird, right? Like we, some of us really trust science right now with COVID, right? We're like, Dr. Fauci said, we talk about Dr. Fauci like he our pastor, you know, they be like, pastor said, and they like, Dr. Fauci said, you know? So it's kind of the same kind of situation on one hand. And then there's a personality test, you know, oh, no, 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 I'm gonna bind that in the name of G, you know? And I just don't think, you know, everything, we be, we be calling on Jesus to stop stuff that Jesus don't even need to stop. You know what I'm saying? Like wasting God's time, you know? God's trying to stop bombs and stuff and you want to stop personality tests. So what I'm saying is I think we have to be okay with science to a certain, you know, yeah. a, you know extent, but we have to know, yeah, there are places to stop. But I think when you start to say things like, okay, a personality test is demonic, I think that also helps us to believe stuff like counseling and therapy and things like that aren't good and healthy. Just find a good line. Find somebody who's smarter than you. Like I said, Dr. Moss, what you think about this? You know what I mean? It's okay to call together some people and ask them what they believe, but I really don't think, I don't think Myers-Briggs is horoscopes. Right, yeah, that's good. Well, let's and we give need it to know ourselves. Yes. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Beyond the stuff that your mama and friends tell you because they love you, yeah. you need to know. Let's look at some Jahari window pane. What's the stuff that you don't know about yourself that everybody else can see? Mm -hmm. We need to get to the point where we're okay with those things as well. Yeah. And whatever you do, you pray about it then and say, God, what should I keep from this experience? You know, what? where are you in all of this? And hold what is what belongs to God and what God can confirm and affirm and then throw the rest out. All right. Amen. Yeah, I, I, I think for me, <clears throat> so I'm studying this right now, particularly the Enneagram, if that's how you say it. Enneagram. Enneagram, okay. And so I've listened to some ladies that have come out of the foremost woman that wrote like over 100 books in the new age sphere, and, and she has another young lady, I can't remember what their names were, <clears throat> but they've been on Mike Heiser's channel, and they talk about the origins on the Enneagram. I would, I would probably, because I understand what you're saying, I think a lot of times, you know, Christians, we team to find a, a demon under every rock. I think they're, they would, you know, they would say psychology, if, you know, when you were talking about counseling, like psychology 
that's kind of has a humanistic origin, but it's still like, again, from being a psych, all I got as a psychology major, undergrad, so I ain't a PhD in psychology, but they would say that doesn't count as something that in its origin would be viewed as unredeemable. So the ideogram, they're talking about its original usage and how it was co-opted. And so I'm, I'm not giving an answer. I'm just saying I'm studying it to try to really understand it and then even understand like, like even, and I don't want to start a, a debate, but like even if somebody talk about soror, uh, you know, can you, Christians being Christian sororities and fraternities and that question and uh, being sorority, not Christian, but just general ones, you know, what, how do we work through what's redeemable and what's unredeemable? And I think that's the question I think that all of us should be working towards. Is something's origin, does it demand that it's totally shut off as being something that's usable? So let's get rid of the Christmas tree, they'd say. Let's get rid of the Easter. So all those different things. So that's what I think I'm meditating and working through, if that makes sense. Nah, I hear that word that we are supposed to put in that work. And thank you all. Can we give it up for our panelists for putting in that work and giving us some things to think about? Thank you all so much. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. And I'm so excited to come to you to talk about Courageous Conversations 2022. That's right, we're at it again for another year. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well, but don't miss this year. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching g3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to g3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.